Okay, let's see how this goes. Twinkle, twinkle, little satellite, how I wonder what you are. Up above the world so high, moving fast over the stars. Twinkle, twinkle, little satellite, how I wonder what your brightness will be! <laughs> I think, honestly, that is the best introduction we have ever had on the Scientists. Um, yes, I think it is. <laughs> I think I have taken you completely on surprise. That was very much by surprise. Oh my goodness, that was fantastic. I love it. I feel Thank like we, ha we have to record a scientist version of Twinkle Twinkle Little Satellite now. <laughs> yes, probably we should do that. Although perhaps I should improve my lyrics, intonation, pronunciation, and even my singing. <laughs> <laughs> we speak for a living. We don't have to sound good when we sing. Well, I used to sing not that bad in the past. I don't know. Anyway. There we go. Well, welcome to The Scientist. I am Kirsten Banks. And I'm Angel Lopez Sanchez. And, and we, we are, are The, the Scientists. Okay, I'm still recovering from that song. Singing <laughs> it is not that easy. No, especially when you have to compete with this beautiful little girl's voice on the video. Yes, that's right. So I, I remember that I was singing this song to my son many, many, many times in the past. Mm. A great song to sing for an astronomer father to his little son. For sure. I like it very much. It's a very good one. And it's informative too, because stars twinkle and planets don't. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Definitely. Yes. That's, that's always it. the explanation that I use when people ask, how do you tell the difference between a star and a planet in the sky? I'm like, well, remember, twinkle, 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 twinkle little, little, little star, star, not twinkle, twinkle, little planet. Because that just sounds weird. That is weird. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't rhyme. Another. It doesn't rhyme at all. And it is not what is happening. It is not what happens as well. Anyway, hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 26. Yes. Now, today, uh, maybe you may have guessed, we might be talking about satellites. But we will get to that, sure enough. But of course, as you all know, our first point on our scientist agenda is, of course, space news. What is our space news this week, Angel? Well, I would like to go back to our episode 8. Oh. That was a weird little galaxy. That we were talking about that galaxy. The one that didn't have any dark matter. Exactly. Supposedly. We were discussing a lot about that, what the issues were and uh, the main problem that may have been and why that was important or not because we should expect that all these galaxies to have dark matter and course. it is a very important component of our universe well, I mean, I still galaxies don't know are it made in dark matter halos exactly. so if yes. there's no dark matter, what's going on? Yes, well, just at this week a new paper has been published in a monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, MRAS, by a group of astronomers from the Canary Islands Institute for Astronomy, and some of them are actually a good friend of mine, that they claim that they have solved the mystery of this galaxy. 
Ah. Because one were, of the... Were we right when we were talking about it a few months ago? Yes, yes, yes. Because this was one of the issues that they were raising after the paper claiming that the Galaxy NGC 1052-DF2 didn't have any dark matter was published in Nature last year. Mm. The Nature paper was led by famous astronomer Peter Bandoku. Mm-hmm. And one of the issues was that we actually didn't know well the distance to this galaxy. And that's a very key... And that is the key. That's a very key variable in this yes. conversation. So it is so key that even the title that they have uh, given to this research paper, it is A Distance of 13 Megaparsecs Resolves the Claimed Anomalies of the Galaxy Lacking Dark Matter. Ah, so it, it, it really is key. So key that it is in the title. It is in the title, and uh, as we were discussing in episode 8, if we are considering that the galaxy is much closer to us than the distances that they claim in the first paper, mm-hmm. then you solve the problem. Then you solve the problem. That's because right. you are seeing the stars, they are not as bright as you are considering that they are, because they are closer mm-hmm. to us, mm-hmm. and then you are contrasting that part of matter to include the dark matter. That's right. And did you say 13.6 megaparsecs? 13 megaparsecs. 13 megaparsecs. That is at around 42 million light years. There we go. That's what I was going to say. Yes. The Nature paper by Bandoku and collaborators, they were estimating that the galaxy was at a distance of around 64 million light years away. Right. So that that's a big difference in the distance there. Yes, it is. It is. And this work is showing the fundamental importance of correct measurement of extragalactic distances we have been discussing mm-hmm. and because it has been always one of the most challenging tasks in astronomy to try to find the distances to the objects. It is. The techniques have changed over the years as well. It used to be done uh, by photometric redshifts which were they're good but they're not the best. They, they have a large a large margin of error. Well I still have a plot that I did by myself in a cluster of galaxies that we were observing. They were actually my very first observation with uh, was 2DF in 2007 what or a, so. What a great instrument, that 2DF. At, at the Anglo-Australian Telescope. Mm-hmm. And the plot was showing the distance, assuming the photometric redshift, and the distance that we were deriving using the spectra, mm-hmm. and it was a cloud. Oh, dear. <laughs> it was a cloud. So it was not, not a kind of linear correlation. There were some few of them, but it was majoritarily a cloud. That's right. But now these days we're looking at spectroscopic Information. Information, which is a lot more accurate looking mm-hmm. at the shift in characteristics in the spectra yes. of these objects. For this paper, they have actually used plenty of data, new data, also data taken with the Hubble Space Telescopes. And I don't want to forget that the principal investigator of this paper is my friend Ignacio Trujillo from the ISE. There you go. So, yeah, have a look to that because probably there will be a bit more controversy in the media, or perhaps not that much, but it seems that we are solving this issue. That the issue was that we didn't know exactly. We didn't have the distance right. Yes. There we go. Good. That is, so, what's, what's, that's a good space news, linking back to previous episodes, so following this. up on stories. Yeah. And, and I think that your space news is also related to a previous episode, actually to episode number four, Double Sonic Boom. Yes, this episode is definitely related because Double Sonic Boom was about the SpaceX Falcon Heavy launch. Yes, exactly. And the Double Sonic Boom coming from the two boosters, side boosters coming back down to land mm-hmm. simultaneously, which is just oh, so beautiful. So, so, so beautiful. So beautiful. But as with the 
intro we had, Twinkle Twinkle Little Satellite. Yes. We are talking about satellites today. As we mentioned last episode, we would talk about satellites for our next episode. So the first thing we really want to talk about is just give you an idea of what satellites are, where satellites are orbiting around the Earth. Mm Mm-hmm and what that means for us in general. Then later we have a surprise for you all. We have a special guest. Yes. But we'll leave him as a secret for now because you'll find out later. Okay. But first, let's talk about satellites. So first, um, just to be clear that Kirsten Space News today is going to be satellites. Oh, yes. <laughs> and we are going to link that directly into the, the, the topic of this episode because it deserves a lot of attention, I would it say. It does, yes. We deserve... We, no, we, we don't deserve. We deserve a lot of attention too. Well, yes, of course. <laughs> As science communicators, we feel like it is our duty to communicate and educate and give you all the facts that we can. So that's what we're going to be doing today. Exactly. Okay. With the help of someone else as well. Yes. And giving the facts that's as right. they are coming. And not only f- uh, the facts, but also a bit deeper into the thoughts of what all of this is meaning. Exactly. And what might be the consequences of that. Mm, and not just the emotional reactions, which we are allowed to have, but also coming back with the facts as well and w- w- with the w- thought process. We had a bit of emotional reaction in our previous episode, which is also the consequence that we are recording this today and not in two weeks. That's right. Okay, so satellites. What are they? Satellites are artificial, human-made objects that orbit around the Earth. They don't always have to orbit around the Earth. They can be anywhere. Basically, a satellite is any man-made object in space. That is a very nice definition. We're going to mainly talk about the ones around the Earth, because they are the ones that propose a direct uh, influence and a direct... I don't want to say threat, but they they directly influence our daily lives. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about those today. So currently, there are around 4,900 satellites orbiting around the Earth that almost actually five remain. Thousand, almost 5,000. 5, that remain in orbit, plus 60. That's <laughs> just went up. <laughs> um, but only less than 2,000 of those are actually operational, which is an interesting number. And that is another big issue that mm. is happening. That is the issue of the, all the rubbish that we are putting into space. But That's that right. will be another topic. Another topic, another topic. Uh, so I want to start with a bit of history. No, just a little bit, just a little bit. The first satellite, which usually people know about. The first satellite was launched on the 4th of October in 1957 by the Soviet Union, and it was, of course, Sputnik 1. Yes. Mm -hmm. The first ever satellite launched from the Earth. Since then, now, of course, we have almost Mm 5,000 satellites in orbit. Can I say something else that I have thought some few times, and I I don't know, I, I, I can't believe that between the launch of Sputnik 1, Mm -hmm. You said 1957 Mm -hmm. till humankind got to the moon, 1969, Mm -hmm. only 12 years. Only 12 years. That's a good point. Yes, that is only 12 years. Only 12 years. That's a... That is showing... That's a big, big That is showing how important for the governments, I mean, for the big two governments, the US Mm. and uh, the Soviet Union, was investing in space. space. Not only because they were in in, in the Cold War Mm -hmm. already, and they wanted to show who, which which of these nations were the best, which is the best, who was the first one to get to the moon. But it is uh, still still thinking about that the amount of the huge amount of money that they have to invest for getting this huge jump between only launching a small 
tiny satellite mm. that was a ball with four spikes. Yep. That was it. Sputnik that was it. And in 12 years, we were Landing having two people. people walking on the surface of the moon. Mm. Sorry, I have to say that. It is no, it is fantastic. Just the, just the. That's right. The amount of money and effort that went into those twelve years, and then of course the few years after going, still going to the moon as well. It's just incredible how quickly technology and space technology specifically advanced to allow us to do that. It's just incredible. Okay, so back onto satellites. I now want to talk about where satellites are around the Earth because there are many different orbits. And these different orbits are used for different things as well. So we'll start with the low Earth orbit. These ones are generally at an altitude of around 180 kilometers to 2,000 kilometers. Okay, so two thousand. Two thousand kilometers. So it's not too far away. Okay, of course the International Space Station lies within that low Earth orbit at around 400 kilometers. And the Hubble Space Telescope is also located around there. Oh, is it? Yes, I oh, think it is. There you yes. go. Well, of course, that would make sense because we can see the Hubble Space Telescope fly over sometimes. Yes. It's not mm. very bright, but we can still see it sometimes. It still can see it. Which is exciting. And there are approximately 500 operational satellites, satellites. in that region. Okay. So in low orbit. In low orbit. We also have medium Earth orbit, <laughs> if you hadn't have guessed it, which has about 50 operational satellites, so not as many. And this orbital range is a large one. It's from about 2,000 kilometers up to 35,786 kilometers. That's the medium range. Okay. <laughs> That's a, it's a big medium. It, it is a big medium, definitely. And then, of course, the remainder of the operational telescopes lie in the geostationary orbits, which are not much of a range, but just Exactly. A singular altitude of 35,786 kilometers. The reason why it's a specific orbit altitude is because these geostationary orbits, as the name sort of implies, these satellites remain stationary relative to the Earth's surface. So their orbit time is 23 hours, 59 minutes, something, something, something seconds. So this should be the satellite probably mainly for communications, telecommunications. Yes, and, and navigation. And navigations, and mm -hmm. also for weather, these kind of satellites that are always pointing and looking at the same region in the Earth. Yes. Um, and I will also add that it is a very nice exercise for physics students to determine the orbit of geostationary satellites. Mm, it is. Okay. So, now that we know where these orbits are, there actually is another type of orbit, which I'm going to get to after this point. And the point I'm trying to make here is that most satellites stay in orbit. Now, we can generally know this because we see we're, we're always talking about satellites more and more going up there. It's getting more and more polluted. And we see there's that NASA progression video yes. or photos that mm -hmm. shows satellites in this time, this time, and this time. It just gets more and more populated. Now, as we said, there are about 5,000 satellites in orbit where only about 2,000 of them are operational. So satellites generally only last for three to five years, mm -hmm. and then they're made redundant, basically. Now, there are options that companies can go through with their satellites. They can obviously, number one, deorbit them, but that's expensive. They can leave them in their orbit, which is fine, just whatever, just, just keep doing its thing, which I personally think is very irresponsible. 
Yes, it might be. Yeah, Especially but, if we're but putting but more it is the, cheap, there. the cheapest option. It is the cheapest option, cheapest so option. I understand that side of it. But there's also this thing called the graveyard orbit. Mm-hmm. So this is the orbit at which you chuck your satellite when you're done with it. Again, expensive because you have to pay for the fuel to put it into this orbit. But this orbit, the graveyard orbit, is past the geostationary orbit by a few hundred kilometres. Okay. Okay, so mm. a little bit higher few hundred kilometers higher than the geostationary orbits. This mm. is the graveyard orbit. I would say that perhaps the, at least many of the low orbit satellites they, at the end of the day they are re-entering. They the, might, yes, that's true. Some of the, the lower atmosphere. ones could re-enter mm. into the atmosphere. Because and then they are destroyed when they are doing that. Of course, of course, they would be destroyed because they're so small, they burn mm. up, poof, mm. nice little light show in the sky. At the end collide with the ocean, but I think there have been some few of these that uh, have been colliding in remote areas or mm. rural areas in some yeah. places and whatever. That'd be quite a souvenir yes. if it landed in Although your backyard. A bit, a bit dangerous too. A bit dangerous. No, not because it is, you know, hitting you, but also because of the components radiation. and the radiation yep. that they, uh, that they, can, they can be having. Mm. Well, for my last point, I want to talk about the different types of satellites. And there are lots of different types of satellites. We've touched on a few of them so far. Uh, we, of course, have our astronomical satellites. Okay, we've talked about the Hubble Space Telescope. That would be an astronomical satellite. We have biosatellites designed to carry living organisms for scientific experimentation. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Of course, communication satellites, which would essentially be ones for our uh, phones, all sorts of things, different sorts of communication. Earth observation satellites, okay, intended for non-military use, which I'm sure you've probably went straight <laughs> to that, so Earth observation, hmm, uh, but no, the non-military type, okay, so they're used for environmental monitoring, meteorology, map making, all that sort of stuff. We, of course, have our navigational satellites, Yes, GPS. our GPS. We then have an interesting one that I didn't really think of. It's the killer satellites. What? What? <laughs> The killer satellites. The killer satellite. Mm-hmm. These are designed to destroy enemy warheads, satellites, and other space assets. Ah, uh, okay. So these are more kind of military satellites. I think so. In the, in defense. Yeah, in defense. Or so. But what a name, killer satellites. Killer satellite. Well, imagine that in the eighties they have the Star Wars. Exactly. Program. Exactly <laughs> right. I just just imagine. I can imagine a a documentary, but also thriller movie for astronomers called the Killer Satellites. That'd be quite funny. Mm-hmm. I f- it sounds like a funny B-grade thriller. Yeah, with aliens? With aliens, of course. <laughs> of course with aliens. Uh, which brings us to our next type, which is the crewed spacecraft. Oh, okay, yes. <laughs> of course. Uh, we have miniaturized satellites, usually low masses and small size. Uh, usually mini- mini satellite is between 500 1,000 kilograms, then we have microsatellites, microsatellites below 100 kilograms, and nanosatellites below 10 kilograms. Okay, so these are small satellites. We then have, and I can never say this correctly, the reconnaissance, re- reconnaissance? Um, reconnaissance. Reconnaissance yes. satellites. Okay, so again, Earth observation satellites, communication satellites. These ones are often deployed for military or intelligence applications. Okay, so those are those. We have our recovery satellites, which are becoming more and more prevalent these days to try and actually Just clean up. Clean. I'm, I'm up moving there. things from one place to the other mm-hmm. in orbit. That's right. We have space-based solar power. That's a hard one to say. Space-based solar power satellites. We have, our, of course, our space stations. 
the International Space Station being one. We then also have the Tether satellites, which are connected to other satellites by thin cables called Tethers. Haven't heard of those ones before. That's kind of cool. No idea. And then finally, our weather satellites, primarily used to monitor Earth's weather and climate, of course. Hmm. Pretty self-explanatory. Those are all of our types of satellites, except, of course, we have a new type, which I think needs its own category, because there are just going to be so many of them that they deserve their own category, and that is the Starlink satellites. SpaceX Starlink satellites. So these are the kind of constellation of satellites. That's right. Yes. Although the, the name makes me think, will it actually look like a constellation? Because mm, they're moving. They are moving continuously, so no. no. The constellation, it is just because There's just so there many are of many of them, and that was the, the, the name that someone said, okay, well, it is not one or few, it is a constellation of satellites. It is a bit more, a bit more profound, nice, profound mm. yes, to say, to say something like that. That's right. We have been talking here about a SpaceX company, and uh, Elon Musk, mm-hmm. who is the owner of this company. At the end of the day, Elon Musk, what he wants it is to go to Mars. That's right. That's He's what he wants. That's what he mul- needs. Multi-billionaire or whatever. And, um, well, yeah, he, 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 he's he a ha- very powerful man. He's a very powerful man. He created the SpaceX just with that idea. And it has been really a surprise for many people that uh, at the end of the day, uh, the company was able to make that access into the space is cheaper than what we originally thought because not only recovering, if not all, at least part of the rockets that they have been using. I mean, mm-hmm. the Falcon 9, they can recover completely, but for the Falcon Heavy, still, they are losing a bit. Um, but also making these kind of rockets very simple. That is one of the first steps just to try to really get into Mars in his ambitions plan of you know, in the future, the nearby future, because he would really like to be in Mars. Anyway, for funding that, he the company have been also creating some few other projects. Mm-hmm. And one of them, it is Starlink. Starlink, it is, as we said, a constellation of satellites, perhaps even more than 12,000 units. Mm. That's a that, lot of satellites. That has a very specific goal, which is to provide internet service to everyone at low cost. And that is something important to say. Well, that's many important things to say. But there is still, in some way, testing technology. Mm. So they still don't know for sure, at least we don't know, how they're yeah. going to make it. And how it's actually going to be operational. Something that is important to mention, it is that our phones or our internet devices are not going to connect directly to the satellite. That many people think about that. We are going to have a huge constellation of small satellites orbiting in many different planes, plenty of them at the same time visible in a particular point of the Earth, but you will not connect directly to them. You will need something on Earth that is connecting to them mm. and then you connect to, to that receiver. That's right. So that is an important point, particularly when we are arguing that, okay, SpaceX and Elon Musk is doing that. You can get almost free internet in the middle of the forest or in the middle of the jungle in Africa or whatever it is. Mm. Because that is still unsure how That's it right. will be. Mm. And how much it will cost. Exactly. Because that is a private company mm. and they want to make profit. They do, of course, because they're actually going. The profits they're going to use from this Starlink internet system 
this is actually going to fund their quest to Mars. Mm-hmm, yes. That's what this is for. Yeah, and um, I think that we both are very big defenders of SpaceX and investing in technology, space research, um, building these rockets, and also even the way that they are communicating to the general public. Elon Musk is one of the most followed people mm. in Twitter or in social media on the planet. He has a huge influence. But on the 23rd of May, SpaceX launched a group of 60 of these Starlink satellites. They were launched to low orbit and everyone was very happy and expecting, whoa, another Falcon 9 uh, launch, blah, 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 cheering, great. Mm -hmm. And they were starting to see all the satellites coming together and all moving. But then suddenly an, uh, an astronomer was able to record the train of all these satellites mm. crossing the small field of view of the sky. All the alarms started to ring from there. What, what is this? What is happening? Are we going to contaminate completely our skies with new satellites? And mm. social media and internet was just crazy. It was. So we've decided to bring along a bit more of an expert, or certainly more of an expert than we are, who's been looking at looking at how this is actually going to affect us as astronomers, as general public as well, to help us with this conversation, to bring you all of the facts and to not just give a reactionary emotional response as we did last week. We've decided to bring in a special guest. Yes, and, and we are very proud that uh, he actually offered himself to talk to us after he actually listened to our few comments that we provided in our previous <laughs> a, a episode. A little rant. <laughs> yeah, well, it is okay if we are producing an emotional response in mm. a particular moment. And, and I will say some few more things about that later, after the interview. But so far, I think it is a good idea to listen to this interview to our friend, college astronomer and engineer, Kyler King from Lower Observatory. And now we jump over to our Starlink correspondent, the Majesty Kyla Keane, the Director of Technology, Deputy Director of Technology at Lowell Observatory. Kyla, welcome to The Scientists. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. No, it is really an honor to have you, particularly because uh, we are missing you a lot because you have been working for us here at the previously known Australian Astronomical Observatory, now Australian Astronomical Optics, for eight years in total. Yeah, yeah, a long time. A long, long time. But now you are based at Lowell Observatory. <laughs> you have been working crazily in the last few weeks when we realized that we were having these big problems with the satellites that come in. Yeah, we sort of realized it ourselves. Um, I think it was the one or two nights after they were launched, I was doing a uh, public event with some of our educators at Lowell Observatory. So I was out at 9.30 at night talking about galaxies, galaxy clusters, galaxy formation. We had an image up on, we had a big screen TV connected to our telescope that we were using to look at NGC 5353. And one of the people in the audience looked up at the sky and said, what's that? And we saw the whole uh, Starlink train passing overhead. Wow. Then about 10 seconds later, we got it on our big screen TV. The telescope, we just captured a 12 second image or so of the satellites going straight through and you can see all the streaks uh, across the whole field of view 
And that, that's one of the pictures that's been sort of emblematic of what the concerns are with Starlink. Th that is what I was going to say, that that picture has been all around the world and in uh, showing in, in very different media releases and so on, because it is showing very clearly what the problem is. It's a very striking picture, but it's also not, I don't want to say not the most honest, but it's certainly not indicative of the, you know, long-term state of affairs. This was right after launch when they were a lot brighter. So it got certainly got people scared. And a lot of astronomers were, were worried when they saw things like that. But I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about things definitely will change over time. And it's not going to be just like that all the time. Mm -hmm. how, did, how did you feel when you first saw the satellites? When I saw them in the sky, it was it was a mixture. It was, wow, that's cool. Just like when I could see the International Space Station. But very shortly thereafter, my astronomer brain was going, uh-oh. <laughs> I think Because all astronomers around the world just went, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, it's in the sense of, wow, it is great. Another SpaceX launch and with all, look at those bright satellites, blah, blah. Uh, hey, wait, bright satellites crossing all all of the photos, all the skies that are going to be moving around. And these are only 60. And they're planning to release 12,000. 12, 12,000. 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, and that's just SpaceX. There are what, three or four other companies that want to do something similar. That's right. So, so the sky could get crowded. It can get very crowded. So what, what does this mean for astronomy in the future when they are actually up at their operational orbit? That is a very good question. And that's, that's really... What remains to be seen, and I think there's been a lot of discussion about that. A lot of people were were worried. Honestly, I would say a bit prematurely. It's worth asking the questions, but some of the hyperbole that showed up on social media was talking about the you know the end of ground-based astronomy and they've ruined the night sky for amateur astronomers. And I think it's fine if people are thinking out loud and expressing their concerns, but I don't think those concerns in particular are are valid. They're It's not going to be that bad. I think there have been a lot of people doing really good work in stimulating how the satellites will be seen, how many will be seen, how bright they will be, and even just sort of taking data as the satellites have gone into their final orbits and seeing how bright they will be. Uh, large collaborations that have, have a vested interest in dark sky, like the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, they've had people looking at this carefully to see what impact it will have on their science. There's definitely room for concern, but it's not as bad as it probably looked at the start. That's sort of my, my conclusion after looking at this pretty carefully over the last several weeks. My point here would be that I'm not sure if anyone has thought about this before or because the constellations, I mean, the idea of launching many satellites to do any this kind of internet service, global internet service or whatever they're going to do, or G GPS, satellite, whatever it is. But that have been uh, the constellation, the idea of the constellation have been there for many years already. And I'm a bit skeptic in the sense of any of these companies have contacted astronomers or government to say, hey, we are going to do this in the sky. That, that is perhaps my biggest concern that remains is that there hadn't been much coordination up to this point. And I think it caught everybody off guard, certainly the astronomical community. I mean, I think even, I certainly can't speak for, for the SpaceX engineers, but it seemed like they weren't expecting it to be this bright either. Some of Elon Musk's statements seemed to, at least initially, he seemed to think that it wouldn't be a problem at all. And I think just like a lot of astronomers were thinking and worrying out loud, perhaps Elon Musk was just thinking out loud. I mean, maybe I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. I don't, I don't know him personally, <laughs> uh, but I think he has had more measured statements since his initial 
his, his initial statement said it wouldn't be a problem. And I think he, he has said, and some of his uh, team who have given public presentations since then have been asked about this, have said, yes, we're working on it. We recognize that it could be a problem and we're, we're doing what we can to, to mitigate that. Um, mm. There's a statement by the National Radio Astronomical Observatory that they're saying they're working directly now with SpaceX. I don't think they were doing that before. Now they are. So I think even just in the last few days, there's been a lot of progress that there has been much more communication directly between SpaceX and perhaps some of these other companies. I'm not privy to those conversations, but there has been progress um, with the professional astronomical organizations talking to the companies that are wanting to launch these. So, so I think things are in a much better shape now than they were even a week or two weeks ago. Okay. That's a great now, thing about you, social media as well. Yes. Like it, it started the conversation with these companies. Yes, yes that, that, and, that is definitely a very good thing to hear. I really thought that the conversations with uh, NRA, I mean, the National Radio Astronomical mm -hmm. Observatory, uh, have been there for more than just this couple of weeks. At least that is what, mm -hmm. from the media release of the statement that they have yes. uh, published, since what it was coming out from there. But in any way, it is good to hear that they are starting to talk to together and to get this kind of information, because it is not only the optical part, the optical, the, the light that we see for amateur astronomers, for professional astronomers. It is also the huge contamination that this constellation of satellites might induce for radio observatories, for radio telescopes, particularly radio interferometers, that they really need very radio quiet places. Yes. And that is why they're investing plenty of money building these large facilities. And I really thought that there have been a bit at some connection say, hey, these are the kind of the frequencies that you sh have to avoid because these are the ones mm -hmm. that are most useful for astronomy. But and again- you quiet sites, um, you can do that from the ground. You forbid cell phone phones in a certain area and things like that, but you can't do that with satellites if they're always mm. overhead. So your radio quiet site is suddenly not radio quiet anymore. But if SpaceX and these other companies are working with the radio observatories, they can make sure they're not broadcasting at the wrong frequencies that will interfere with the observatories. So in a sense, I think that might be a particular technical issue for the engineers to solve, but it is, no, I'm not going to say easy, but it's doable. And, and that's certainly the, point the fact too. that the NRAO, for example, are talking with SpaceX is, is where we need to be now, even if we weren't there two weeks or a month ago. Now, earlier in the episode, we talked about different types of orbits for satellites. Do we know what sort of orbit the Starlink constellation will be in? So they, my understanding is they have three different planned sort of shells at three different heights. And they want the lowest orbit is, uh, because these satellites are used for providing internet, the closer ones have the shortest travel time of the signals. So that, that will be the, the shortest lag in communication from the ground up to the satellite. So if you're you know, an online gamer, maybe you want your satellites as low as possible yeah. so you don't have any lag in your um, input to the, the online game. But there are some that are gonna be much higher up. So those will be fainter, but also they will be illuminated more by the sun for, for more for greater mm -hmm. periods of time at night. Yeah. So it's a bit of a trade-off. I think that the current satellites we've been worried about are, are in, I think the lowest orbit configuration so those are going to be the brightest. Yeah. And 
the from the information I've seen online, those are just about at the limit of unaided human vision. There's something like sixth magnitude. Mm-hmm. They can flare to brighter magnitudes potentially, but they're not going to be as bright as like the International Space Station. Of course, no, there no. will be twelve thousand of these crossing the sky every night mm. um, at that brightness. So I think for Unaided human eyes, the night sky won't change all that much. For astrophotographers, there will be more of an issue. And for some of the more the professional astronomical sites with their great big telescopes, there will also be some issues. But the, the, the one that I worried about the most was, was LSST, which I mentioned earlier, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. And they've done the calculations themselves with the, their very large field of view, 10 square degrees. They'll be one or two Starlink satellites in every frame that they take. Wow. But the orbits are known precisely. They know to the second when it will be in the image. Mm-hmm. And they also have software to subtract out satellite streaks. They were going to do that anyway yeah. because there were going to be satellites in their images. Well, with, the, with a view that many. big, it's inevitable um, to see satellites anyway. Yes. They have ways of dealing with it. Um, there are smaller satellite, smaller telescopes. Um, smaller fields of view will see fewer satellites going through them, but they will probably take longer exposures than LSST will. LSST is only doing 15-second exposures, I think, is the mm. nominal cadence. So if you take a longer exposure, but you have a smaller field of view, you can still get one or, or more than one satellite in your field of view. There is software that can handle streaks across your images. That's been in place for a long time. I think what one thing that uh, Elon Musk has said is he's going to try to incorporate things like having active control of the solar panels Mm. so they don't point down at the earth to interfere with optical or infrared observations. I'm not sure how easy that is to implement, but that's the sort of thing that is on the table. He said he's willing to work with the astronomical community and try things like that. Off the top of my head, I think one thing that would be useful is while we can predict where the satellites are going to be, we doing the work ourselves and having to go and check the websites. Can I point in that direction at this time of night? That would be very tedious mm. for a lot of observatories and amateur astronomers. So if there was some sort of tool, utility, a Python script, anything that SpaceX could provide to the astronomical community, that might be very useful. Just saying, hey, just avoid this part of the sky at this time of night. And even if it were machine readable, your computer that's controlling your telescope could automatically do that. Yeah. There are already things in place for if an observatory uses a laser guide star, they need to avoid turning that on when there's a plane flying overhead. Mm. So there's already that sort of algorithm in place at some observatories. And I think if that could be applied more broadly, it might interfere with the normal observations, but at least that would be a good way of SpaceX contributing to the, the astronomical community, avoiding the, the light pollution from these satellites. I don't know, again, I have no idea how technically feasible that is, but that might be the sort of thing that they can offer to help. Mm, at least help so we us. can work start working together on this issue as well. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So I, I am certainly very encouraged that SpaceX, at least, are, are reaching out to the astronomical community. They're now worried about this, even though they weren't before. They're, mm. they're trying to be you know, good, good corporate citizens in this regard. So I've got to give, honestly, I've got to give them a lot of credit. They didn't have to. If you know, you're a billionaire, you, you don't necessarily have to worry about it. Exactly. The, he can, yeah. he can do whatever he wants. He's got the money. <laughs> but, but he is. He, he is taking it into account. Mm. His engineers are taking it into account. They're, they're trying. And we'll see you know, in the coming years what sort of solutions they come up with. 
I think we will. We will see a lot more of these Starlink trains if they want. If they really do want to launch twelve thousand satellites in say the next decade, that's if they do sixty per launch. That's two hundred launches. Yes. That's oh, wow. twenty per year, which is one every two to three weeks. Oh wow! So we will still be getting a lot of these. Oh. Yep, 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 yep. I did the calculation this morning in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> so. When they're going up, it's going to be pretty spectacular. But as long as they don't stay in that sort of, of low or orbit and being that bright, I think we'll be okay. Also, um, one thing that I've not seen as much discussion of, there are some people on Twitter like C. Spasser who have done these calculations hmm. showing the altitude that the satellites come up. And you can say, okay, 12,000 satellites spread over the whole sky is you know, one every four square degrees or something like that. But really, a lot of the ones that are higher up in the sky, for a good portion of the night, depending on the year, they will not be illuminated by the sun. Mm. They'll be in the Earth's shadow. Most of the satellites that are illuminated are below 30 degrees, from the, within 30 degrees of the horizon. And most telescopes don't operate that low. Mm. You're, you're looking at through effectively two atmospheres when you're that far over. And telescopes, astronomers don't want to do that. So they'll... They will just naturally be avoiding many of the illuminated satellites, but that doesn't mean to say it's. That's not to say it's no problem at all. It certainly is an issue that needs dealt with, but I think we're we're making progress on that. Mm, it's just not as big of an issue as was initially thought. I think what what happened a few weeks ago was was very reactionary. Like everyone yes. kind of was like, "Ah, oh, crap, this yes. looks terrible." And then SpaceX was also very reactionary too, with Elon Musk's tweet saying, "Oh, they'll be visible zero percent of the time." It's no one really notices satellites. And you have to move the astronomy all your observatories to space. Yeah, no, can you can you pay for that, please, Mr. Musk? Even though. <laughs> so some of those comments didn't turn out to be accurate, but mm. like I said earlier, a lot of the astronomers were saying things that weren't accurate either. And if they're if everybody's thinking aloud, that's this is new because this was happening in real time. Yeah. And on social media, so I I'm glad people have sort of stopped and taken a breath. And the professional societies have started to weigh in. Not immediately; they took time to, to think about it and talk about it and understand the situation. And I think we're all getting a much better handle on on where things are going to go now. So, how would you summarize everything that we have been talking about? Your main point to take from all this conversation. My main point is we definitely need a lot more conversations between the space launch industry and other stakeholders, whether that's professional astronomers, amateur astronomers, just people who are interested in the night sky. And I think not that didn't happen enough beforehand, and it's it's certainly happening now. So that's, that's a very encouraging sign. As far as the astronomers worrying about the quality of their data, yeah, there, there could be an issue. There are ways to mitigate it that SpaceX in particular is working on, and we'll, we'll see how things go from here. Excellent. Well, thank you, Your Majesty, Deputy Director of Technology at Lowell Observatory. Before you go and before we let you go, first of all, thank you for coming along and talking to us about Starlink today. But we've often asked guests on our show what their favorite object to look at in the sky is. And so we'd like to pass that question on to you as well. What is your favorite object to look at, either through a telescope, with your naked eye, through binoculars? What is your favorite object in the night sky? I have a couple. So one of the telescopes that I helped build was the dark energy camera that's on the four meter Blanca telescope 
at Cerro Tololo Observatory in Chile. That should be for well, another. That, that should be for that. another conversation, Kyler. That really should be for another conversation Absolutely. because it, it is be an, an amazing telescope, an amazing survey, an amazing camera that you helped to develop, yes. and that would be great. So, To talk about one that. of the first pictures we took with the, the camera when it got on sky was NGC 1365, I think it was. It's a beautiful spiral galaxy, it's almost space on. And honestly, after working on that telescope and uh, instrument for six years, seeing that felt like baby pictures of my kid. <laughs> um, and I've, I've had it as the desktop on my laptop for, for a while. That's one of my favorites NGC 1365. Oh, it's so pretty. When I was um, in graduate school, I did a lot of work with high school students who came for summer programs. And I would do a lot of observing with a, a manual telescope. It wasn't even computer controlled, but it had beautiful optics. And I got to the point where I could find the ring nebula just by eye, moving the telescope manually. Oh, wow. That's so that impressive. Was, that was a very memorable. That's not a very big target, but um, I could point at Vega point to the other two, two stars and Lyra, go directly halfway between them, and there it was. So I always had, had fond memories of the, the Ring Nebula in particular. I would say that's one of my other favorite objects. Yeah. It's a very so, pretty one. I do like to show that in the planetarium at the observatory sometimes. Incidentally, there's also a very, very good picture of the Ring Nebula with the Starlink satellites. Oh, really? Uh, I think... Uh, yes, I remember seeing that one too. Ah, yes. There you go. Thank you very much, Kyler, for joining uh, this evening time for you, morning time yeah. for us here in Australia, but it worked. And really, really, we are appreciate a lot your time and your comments about uh, the Starlink and the constellation of satellites that will be there very soon. So again, thank you very much for joining us in The Scientist. Yeah, thank you. I, I was happy to, to chat with you and I would love to do it again sometime. Excellent. We'd love to have you back maybe to talk about the dark energy That would be Come great. On. Yes, yes. Absolutely. Put it there, put it there. Okay, bye. Hey, bye. Tell you what, I learned a lot from that conversation, and I'm really glad that we had that conversation too. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there are many things that um, it is important that we are putting that clear and being mm. evident, and we should not try to go into the panic of, oh mm. my goodness, what is going to happen? Because he mentioned that very clearly during the interview. It has been everywhere this nice or not nice image of mm. the galaxy NGC 5353 with all the trails of the satellites by Starlink. Mm. But that is not exactly what is going to happen. No, except it's, I feel a lot more comfortable with the idea of Starlink now, I have to say, because it's right, we, we had a very reactionary response, which is okay. No, it is definitely okay. Oh, now back it up. I would like to put some few things into perspective mm -hmm. one, once again. Because there are, I will say there are three main points to, to discuss here. Mm -hmm. probably just will, to really cement. Yeah, there, there probably will be more than three, but there are three main areas. How Starlink is going to affect the view of the sky for the public, mm. for everyone to enjoy it. That is one thing. The other topic will be um, how that is going to affect to amateur astronomers, yep. which at the end of the day, amateur astronomers, really, no, I'm, I'm trying to do the joke and, and I'm doing yeah. a bit of irony. Please don't misunderstand me. But there are many stakeholders, space agencies, even, even professional astronomers that say, eh, amateur astronomers, eh, who cares about them? Mm -hmm. But I care about of course. 
and we care about that because that is part of for us to study the sky. Plus, think about all of the great discoveries amateur astronomers have actually made. For example. And all of the great photos I take. For example. For example. We love you, a- for amateur example. astronomers. For example. But the other issue will be, or the last one will be, how that is going to affect to professional astronomy. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to start with the public. I think that um, it's starting to be very evident that we have had uh, for some few years already and some few decades the problem of the light pollution. Mm-hmm. So that is going to be an extra thing to add for polluting our skies. Yes. So light pollution, it is affecting that much that right now the young generations are not able to identify the majority of the constellations or even see the Milky Way, mm-hmm. which is very sad. It is tragic. So here I will refer to our episode 12, Lightning Saturn in Autumn, the last one of the first season, that we were talking about Saturn, but also about the problem of the light pollution. Because yes. it was connecting with the festival Pivot, Sydney. It was. Yes. Uh. That uh, perhaps we, we, are not right go- we are not going to say anything in, no. in, this, in this point. I'll go on another rant if we do. Uh, yes, and me too. But the point here, it is that when... We were seeing these uh, satellites, how bright they were in the sky mm. at the very beginning, that they were having flares of magnitude minus two. Magnitude minus two, it is brightest, that the brightest star that we can see in the night sky, mm-hmm. which is serious. Yes, and that's serious. It is serious. <laughs> and, and I was also considering after the sun, the moon, Venus, Jupiter and Mars, the sixth brightest object that we could see in the sky, it would have been the flares of these satellites. Oh, wow. But it is nothing new. I mean, no. we have seen that. We've seen bright satellites before. And even the, in the International Space Station. Even and, brighter sometimes. And you can actually go to some few apps and software and, and web pages. For example, Heavens Above. And, and you can uh, say, okay, I'm in this place on the Earth and I'm going to observe tonight which are the satellites that are visible. And you mm. can do that. And it is something that amateur astronomers also do and it is fun. And you know, when they are doing and showing that to the public, it is nice because you're already having one little trail moving from one part to another part of the sky, but not mm. that much. The problem it is, if you are going to have 12,000 of these things and perhaps from a particular point on the Earth, you might have hundred or more of these satellites visible all the time. Mm-hmm. They will be always and will be moving from one place to the other. If you are considering that these are going to have flares with money to minus two and that we were seeing that these uh, they were very easily observed in the night sky, that was when we panicked. Yes. I will say. We are polluting even more the sky mm. with all this. Luckily it seems that it is not going to be the case. Yes, as, as Kyla mentioned to us, we, we should be fine. So there have been some estimations and uh, some few blogs and articles showing the number of satellites we should expect from a particular point of the Earth and so on. And now we are realizing that perhaps the real brightness of the satellites is going to be just in the limits of human eye, Yep, which is a good thing. But taking that with a bit of care, because when you are in a dark place you still might be able to see 100 little Mm. trails moving around, particularly 
in the hours close to the twilight. Yes. And if you are in very, very uh, close to the to the poles in summertime in your hemisphere, you will still see something. Not, not, not close to the poles, but in high latitudes. If you're too close to the poles, you actually will see the satellites relatively lower o- over the sky. Oh, there you go. Only 30 degrees or so because of the orbits that they have. If that happens in the worst case scenario, the best place to actually go and see the stars will be in the poles. In the oh, future. great. <laughs> so at least we will have... Well, we have one spot. Well, two spots two on the spots. Earth. <laughs> Perhaps a bit too cold because it has to be on winter. <laughs> yes, yes. Bit, bit chilly. <laughs> winter there. So, I mean, no sun during all the day. So that is one of the points. The other point, it is the point of the amateur astronomers. And amateur astronomers really are very, very... Angry, very, yeah. very angry and very valuable people in the astronomy community. They are completely right on saying, hey, what is happening here? Why are you doing this? No, we are going to, all our photos are going to be ruined because of this. Mm. And yes, it is an issue. I have to say that at the end of the day, usually amateur observations or amateur astronomers who are taking beautiful images of the, of the universe and also even getting very valuable data for professionals to use, mm-hmm. they usually take plenty of images, relatively short ones, perhaps only some few minutes, till 10 minutes. Now it is not very common to have half an hour or an hour, mm. precisely because the best way of reducing the noise in their images is this stacking hundreds, no, I'm talking about hundreds, of, it, can be, it, can, it can be tens, yeah. it can be thousands. For planets, usually they are stacking thousands. Wow. different frames that are taking a very fast speed just to be sure that they are getting the the, the best ones with the best thing mm. but for deep sky perhaps they are taking easily 20 30 50 10 minutes exposures yeah. when you're doing that and you are following the standard uh, stacking procedures the trails will will disappear if that is done properly yeah so in that sense well it is and i'm not going to say i'm not defending completely the, the issue with the Starlink, but I will say that it is a bit minimized. It, yes, it's it is it's not difficult to remove these things from the photos. Yes. But being a professional astronomer, perhaps someone is going to say, Hey, that you are defending your field. I'm trying to, but really, perhaps for professional astronomers that is the ones that are going to be in the worst position mm. for these satellites. Yeah. Not only because of the uh, new large telescopes that uh, we are building now and spending a lot of money on that. Kyler was mentioning LSST, Mm -hmm. the large synoptic survey telescope that it will be able to get images of all the sky in only three nights. Mm -hmm. This telescope, for example, it is taking images relatively fast, as Kyler was mentioning. So... They are going to get the, the, the algorithm that is combining the images is since that it will be able to deal with the problem. But when we are using spectroscopy on when we are using really deep images and we do that very, very, very commonly in medium class to large telescopes, exposition of half an hour, even an hour, and you are going to have some few of these. And we usually only take few frames. 
three, four, five frames, seven frames, it is just going to be even a bit too much. Yeah. And when you're combining those, if you have many of these traces, that might be a problem. Would, yeah. Plus the contamination that is going to appear in the calibration frames. That is another thing. That is why perhaps professional astronomers are starting to be really, really worried about the situation with Starlink and other satellites. Yeah. And of course, the issue that I've had with this, as I mentioned last week, is just the misinformation that's been put out into the world by certain people. And of course, as we talked with Kyla, it has been from both sides, from reactionary responses, saying, speaking out loud or thinking out loud, as Kyla said it. But there's still... Oh, I still have this beef with Elon Musk. He's a very powerful man who's... I don't want to say manipulating because it's a little bit too harsh, but he is taking advantage his power mm -hmm. to put out the narrative that he wants people to believe. I, I'm not sure if he was completely aware at the beginning. Mm. And, and that was also the point that I raised. So the main thing to take from here it is that we were not ready for this. Yeah. We didn't know. We were not aware that it was going to happen. The astronomical community was not informed that this could be a big issue. And yes, definitely, Elon Musk, he sent a few tweets, you know, uh, well, the satellites will be only... Yeah, they won't be visible, visible at night time. At, they won't, it, you won't see not be them visible. when the stars are up. It, uh, so there, there, were, there were this kind of... Yeah, let's go to summarize because they're interesting. They will be only visible at, at daytime, so they yep. will not be visible at night. Yep. The other one was the International Space Station has lights, and that is why it is so bright. Mm -hmm. Nope. Um, <laughs> the other one was that... Satellites are noticed zero, approximately 0% of the time. Yes, like, and, <laughs> and that uh, we should move uh, all our os astronomical observation to the space anyway, mm -hmm. which is false. Which is such a billionaire thing to say. <laughs> it, is, it is false. Because we, were, we have been talking a bit about the optical astronomy. In the interview with Skyler, we mentioned also the problem with the contamination in radio astronomy because of mm -hmm. the radio interference yes. that these satellites might produce because they are emitting or receiving in bands that are very important for astronomers to understand the universe. And there are many projects at the SKA here in the, the ASCAP and Meerkat in South Africa, mm. Mir, uh, ASCAP here in Australia, SKA, it is between the two big countries. So it's something that you have to take into account. And that is why International Astronomical Union and many other organizations have been releasing during this week statements saying, hey, we have to work together. Mm -hmm. So trying to summarize, I think that the main point it is that, that we were not aware yes. that that was going to and happen. And the conversations were not happening. The conversations were not happening. And that we don't have proper laws of the space. That's a good point. That is a very important point. Yes. Imagine, this is an, a private company. Mm -hmm. They are going to do this. Starlink might be affecting many people around the world. Mm. Imagine that, I'm going to exaggerate here a bit. Imagine that for whatever reason in Australia, and there is no laws protecting our national parks. And someone discovered that there are a mine of, whatever, we want to say gold, oil, mm. uh, carbon, whatever, in the middle of the Blue Mountains, just underneath the Three Sisters, for saying something even oh. more dramatic. <laughs> and there is a, 
someone who is a billionaire and saying, I have the money to start it and I'm going to do it anyway because there is no laws. There is no, no way that the government is stopping me to do that. Mm. That is the situation at the moment. A private company, mm. it is putting plenty of satellites, 12,000 satellites perhaps out mm -hmm. there. That is the beginning of many other companies also doing that in different countries. That's right. And we don't have a law. We don't have any legislation internationally, about this. Any legislation saying what we can or we can't. Because at the end of the day, and I'm coming back to the view from the general public, the night sky, it is a heritage. It is. For everyone. It is. To enjoy. Every, the, the night sky is critical and key to every living being on this earth. We've all experienced it. We all get to share it together. And it is, it's being taken away. It is much more profound than all the conversation and all the facts that we are providing here today. It is how the night sky is linking us to our origins, mm. to our thoughts, to related to our culture, how we have looked to the sky, how have we been developing as a society, as a civilization. It is so important for us, also for artists, for everyone it is attracted and need to understand and protect the night sky. Mm. And with that, I think we, we should be more or less done because ooh, this has been a long, it's going to be a long episode. It's a long episode today. <laughs> well, speaking of the night sky, I think it's now time to finish with our usual what's up. That I'm excited are, for this what's up. This yeah, is but, one of my favorite but, galaxies. But we are going to do it very, very, very uh, fast today because first it is a very common object and very famous object, but we have not mentioned this one as a WhatsApp object here. So I'm let's go for it. we haven't. No, we haven't. Yeah. It is the Sombrero Galaxy. Hey, Sombrero. M104. That lies at around 30 31, million yep. 31 million light years away. It's a far is not that far. Not that far. It is uh, in the, in the Virgo constellation, a bit close to to Corvus to constellation, but then more or less in the in the limit. And uh, it was included as an object by Monsieur in his catalog, although it was first discovered by Pierre Michel, a French astronomer, in uh, 1783, mm. something like that. Definitely, it is. Fantastic object to have a look through with a small telescope. You will, I've seen it. You will, you will see it's definitely beautiful. why it is called the sombrero, the hat galaxy, or the, the, the Mexican hat mm -hmm. galaxy. Sombrero, that is the nice pronunciation. Sombrero, no sombrero. <laughs> sombrero, sombrero. The sombrero galaxy. And fantastic images also taken by many amateur astronomers, professional mm. astronomers, even the Hubble Space Telescope. And it has plenty of particularities. I will mention, for example, the dust lane that have been very well seen with mm. the Spitzer the, data. The rim of the sombrero? Yes, the rim of the sombrero. And when you compare that with the optical, it's really, really interesting. And it has a, a supermassive black hole in the center and of so course. on. And the other interesting thing it is that it has a very intriguing system of globular clusters. Mm. So many... If you see the Hubble Space image... Many of the stars that are around are actually not the stars. They are global clusters around the Sombrero Galaxy. That's really cool. And and that was one of the main results that were published in a paper about the population of so global clusters in this object. 
Well, there we go. We've had, a, we've had a long episode today, but I think it's been very informative. And I'm glad that we had this conversation as well because we, we needed to have this conversation to get all the facts and for us to learn something too. And I'm very happy to say that I learned a lot this episode. Yeah, I think that we have both learned plenty of things preparing and recording this episode. So that is something else that we can add to why we are doing science communication and we are recording a podcast like The Scientist. That's right. But it is goodbye for now. But also, as usual, please do send us your questions. We love having them. Um, you can get us on Twitter at The Scientists. You can also tweet uh, myself and Angel as well. You'll find our tags in the Scientist timeline and on the homepage at The Scientists. You can also find us on Facebook. Listen to us on all of your devices. And please, 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 please send us your questions. Yes, yes, we are missing that. We are missing the, all those questions. But anyway, I think that it is done for now. That's right. And we will see you on the 20th of June. Well, you'll you'll hear us on the 20th of June. I know how things work. You know how it yep, is. You know it's how fine. it is. Anyway, see you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.